Today on Let Me Be Frank, Bishop Caggiano talks about the Olympics. They're happening right now. Oh yes, in Tokyo. Are you watching? Well, we are talking about them today and the lessons we can learn from sports and competition and how to apply them to our lives and to our faith. Oh, and also, next week is the Solemnity of the Assumption of Mary. So Bishop Frank will help us think about that important day and event and how we can prepare. So keep your radio locked in. It's 13.50 a.m. or on your phone using the Veritas mobile app. If you don't have the app, you can go get it at the Apple App Store, the Google Play Store, or at veritascatholic.com. We are very grateful because Let Me Be Frank is brought to you by a grant from Foundations in Faith. Foundations in Faith embraces innovative approaches to funding pastoral care programs in the Diocese of Bridgeport. Resources focus on energizing lifelong faith formation and discipleship and fostering a commitment to justice and accompaniment with our most vulnerable. From seminarians to retired priests, from baptism to last rites, from suburbs to inner cities, the reach is broad and the impact is meaningful. For more information, visit foundationsinfaith.org. All right, so this is Let Me Be Frank on the Veritas Catholic Network. I am Steve Lee, and it is my pleasure, as always, to introduce Bishop Frank Caggiano. Steve, it's good to be with you. And we're going to be talking sports today, right? Yeah, I thought it'd be a nice little a little change-up, um, a little lighter-hearted. And, uh, yep. you know, we could mm-hmm. talk about the, um, the Olympics. So are you yeah. watching? Yeah. Did you watch them as you grew up? Well, grew up for sure. Oh, yeah, because I love the Olympics. Yeah. Not so much the Winter Olympics, I must confess. Because that, that, that occurs during school, the school year, so it's kind of like a bit of an issue, right, to watch right. The, the Winter Olympics. But the Summer Olympics, yeah, especially when the, I mean, the pageantry, and the, I think a lot of people just watch it. Yeah. Besides their interest in individual sports, for the pageantry, and to actually kind of glimpse what a world could look like if everybody got along. That's really... That's exactly what my oldest son said this year, just last week. He, he said, mm-hmm. we were watching one of the events and he, he looked at me and goes, it's kind of cool to see all the nations from around the world get together and, and participate in something like this together. Although this time I'm told, I did not watch the opening games, I couldn't, but there were no spectators, correct? Yeah, no spectators in these stands uh, and any of the things that I've been watching. It's yeah, kind of so weird. It is. Yeah, it's actually kind of sad in a sense. But I mean, but necessary, but nonetheless. Yeah, and the Olympics, of course, have a great... I, I did not know much of the history of the Olympics, but in preparing for our podcast, I did some homework, right? Thank you. And I found some <laughs> really interesting stuff. Yeah. Really, some really interesting stuff. First of all, we all know of the modern Olympics that started at the turn of the 20th century, right? 1896 is when there was the first one in okay. Athens. Second one was in Paris. And it's been rotating every four years in the summer since... Originally, they had summer and winter games in the same year, and then they decided to, to space them in such a way that every two years there would be an Olympics. Okay. Yes. But the original Olympics lasted for 1,200 years, from the 8th century before the birth of the Lord to just about the 4th century AD. That's incredible. And Yeah, and it, and it was among the city-nation-states of Greece. And there was a myth that during the Olympics, there would be peace, that there was no hostility 
among the nation states um, during the Olympic Games and all the rest. Actually, that's not true. Historically, they allowed safe passage for the athletes, but they did not necessarily end whatever war was going on or any conflict that was going on. Hmm. But there's an intuition about, even then, the possibility of a harmony or a peace being established precisely through sportsmanship, right? Which is fascinating. And the original Olympics were really religious and sport and athletic festivals, right? And the honoring of Zeus, right, was very much a part of that. So they were almost, there's a religious imagery that now is secularized, but in the beginning was very much part of their religious observance, right? And there were sacrifices to Zeus, which of course, thank God, do not occur nowadays. <laughs> but when they did resurrect the Olympics, again, it was the same idea, is, is to bring people together in good sportsmanship, in competition, um, and vet out whatever, quote unquote, competition, aggression exists in peaceful, fraternal ways, All right? But I mean, the Olympics, has become a huge enterprise, right? Because you have the Olympics, you have the Paralympics, right? For those who are disabled. Mm -hmm. You have the Special Olympics. Right. For those who, are, um, who have disabilities in development. Yes. Right? You have Youth Olympics now, who are basically teenagers. So it's become a huge, they, you have an International Olympic Committee, you have national committees. I mean, you have to, we're talking a huge to-do yeah. here, right? Um, the other thing when I was doing my research, some of the things that I, I, I did not r realize at the time, um, the Olympic flag. Now the Olympic flag has five circles that are intertwined, right? Yes. Like interlocked. Yes. Do you ever ask the question why they're five? Uh, uh, I don't, I never did. I never thought five no, oceans. I, I, I didn't either. <laughs> to be yeah. honest, I never did either. And it, only in the research did I learn that because the original Olympic Committee considered North, Central, and South America as a single inhabited continent, it represents the five inhabited continents of the world, since Antarctica is not right. permanently inhabited by humans. Fascinating. Yeah. First yeah. of all, it's, it's a commentary to the Americas, because we don't see each other necessarily as a single continent, but they imagine the Americas, North, Central, and South, as one continent, which has enormous implications for reflection, theologically, spiritually, just on yeah. a human level. Right? Yeah. And the five colors, right? Which is interesting. Do you remember what they are? I'm gonna say um, uh, black, blue, green, red, and uh, uh, yellow. Black, blue, green, red, and yellow. Good for you. A plus, my friend, <laughs> A plus. I know my colors, huh? <laughs> yeah, all right, so why those five colors? Why not chartreuse? Beige. <laughs> uh, oh, okay, interesting. Because um, those are maybe the most basic and primary of, of, of colors. Could be. 
but okay. that's not the reason they were actually chosen. Okay. It, it's interesting because every, at the time when it was created, every known flag of every nation on earth had at least one of those colors in its flag. Aha. So again, it's a sign of bringing everyone together in unity. I think that sort of stuff is it, it's just fascinating. Yeah. Right? yeah. And lost to like 99% of the people. Right. Yep. Right. And of course, the torch is still lit, right, in Olympia and is, and is literally relayed throughout wherever it may be. Now, in ancient Olympics, that was a part of the sacrifice to Zeus. Of course, that doesn't happen anymore. But again, it's a great way to be able to unite countries as you pass through them. Yeah. Isn't that interesting? Yeah. Right? And there's a motto to the Olympics, which again, I did not know until um, I did the research. It was, it was created, it was proposed in 1894. It's been mm -hmm. the official motto since 1924. It is in Latin. I'll give you the English translation. It's three words, faster, higher, stronger. Huh. And in the um, explanation, this is what it says. The most important thing in the Olympic Games is not to win, but to take part. Just as the most important thing in life is not the triumph, but the struggle. The essential thing is not to have conquered, but to have fought well. Now again, when you talk about sportsmanship and all the rest, those are basic lessons that all of us, but particularly young people, need to learn. And the Olympics could be a way if we focused in on some of this background material that most of the time we forget. It's a great way to teach basic values, right? Basic virtues for yes. young people. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Wow. Mm -hmm. So now, do you watch them? Um, I, I feel like I used to watch them. They were, I feel like they were a bigger event when I was a kid. And in recent Olympics, I just, I'm not sure if it's just me personally or if it just has faded a little into the background in general because so much other stuff is happening. I, I don't, I don't have a good feel on that, Excellency. But for me, yeah, I don't watch them as, as religiously as I used to. Yeah, I think there's, because there's an overload now. Yeah. There's so much information, so much entertainment, so many things going on that, yeah, it's hard to capture your attention. In the old day, when I was young, like this was a big deal because it was a big deal. There wasn't else going, much going on in the summer. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> right? Those days are long gone. And the other interesting thing is, this year, Greece is celebrating its 200th anniversary of independence. Wow, okay. Right? And the, the interest in reviving the Olympic Games occurred was born when the Greek War of Independence from the Ottoman Empire ended in 1821, when Greece became its own independent nation with a monarchy. That's when the idea first arose about having these games and resurrecting these games. So, so congratulations to our, our Greek brothers and sisters, right? In yes. this anniversary. But you could see how it was, how much of this converges. Now, there's less controversy. Are they worth it? 
Do they bring in the revenue? They cost a fortune. The most expensive <laughs> one was $55 billion. B, billion dollars was the most expensive. That factors into almost $700,000 per athlete that was there. Oh my goodness. Right. The most financially successful was Los Angeles. Oh, wow. That was, was uh, that 84? Peter Uberoth, I think his name was. Um, because he developed sponsorships for the Olympics, had a tight control on the cost. So he actually, if I'm not mistaken, that, those Olympics in Los Angeles actually ended in the black. Very rare. Very rare for it to happen. Anyway, so I learned a lot about the Olympics. I'm glad you <laughs> raised the question. It's, it's just so um, amazing, you know, not just the Olympics, but it's, I think it's, I feel like it's more pronounced in the Olympics just to see sheer physical and mental dominance and willpower. You know, people like Michael Phelps in the water and Usain Bolt mm -hmm. on the track. Just amazing mm -hmm. to watch that the human body can do that. Mm -hmm. Simone Biles mm -hmm. in gymnastics. I don't know if you've seen her at all, Excellency, but she no. is. No, I have not. I mean, she flies and she is amazing. So. Yeah. Just what people are capable of. Well, and also, it's interesting. Um, it's what people are capable of and what the ancillary support that's given that unlocks talent that may have always existed but didn't have the support. Like, for example, I was at a gathering, a breakfast, and there was a gentleman there very much prominent in the uh, sport of golf. And he spoke about the distance controversy in golf. And I had no idea what he was talking about until I intuited that now it is not totally uncommon for a golfer, a pro golfer, to hit a golf ball and achieve a speed in excess of 122 miles an hour. And that being the case, the question of distance, mm -hmm. like how do you space out the holes in a golf course is at least part of this controversy, part of it. And part of the reason why that can happen is not because people are now in the last 20 years become stronger, but because clubs have become more sophisticated. Golf clubs have become more sophisticated mm -hmm. as baseball bats, as baseballs, as golf balls, as tennis balls. So technology is actually allowing the instruments of sport to to allow humans to achieve more. Yeah. So supplements, nutrition, all the rest, there's much more known now than it was even 30 years ago. Yeah. But yeah. there's one other thing about the Olympics I find fascinating. The Paralympics. The Paralympics. For those who may be disabled. I had no idea that the Paralympics was first proposed right at the conclusion of World War II in 1948 by a gentleman by the name of Sir Ludwig Gutmann, who determined that the rehabilitation of soldiers after World War II, many of whom were maimed or hurt, could be assisted by a multi-sport event that he began just among several hospitals coordinated with the 1948 London Olympics. Hmm. So it came out of war and the desire to help those who had suffered so much. 
that was the beginning of the Paralympics. Isn't that fascinating? Yeah, I, I, I love that. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So this tremendous humanitarian potential here that in a secular world, which does not necessarily open its, its mind, its heart, and its ears to the call of faith, the kerygma, but you can use secular events to raise some basic questions about how do you bring healing out of war? How can human beings who differ in so many different things, how can they learn to tolerate and compete peacefully? How, can we imagine the opening and closing games being a parable for a world that is at peace? Now, of course, if you, if you listen to the word of faith, you would have a compelling reason and the methodology, but if you're not willing to do that, at least look at the secular version and say, wouldn't you prefer this? <laughs> mm. Right? Yeah. Yeah. It's, it's mm -hmm. uh, gosh, it's almost like it's written in all of our hearts. <laughs> well, isn't that what Christian faith says? Being made in the image and likeness of God? Right? The other thing that's interesting, I could go on and on and on, because now you got me on a topic that I just, I just found fascinating, because I knew <laughs> none of this. I, I would be a liar if I said I knew this. I didn't, but now that I do, I'm excited about it. There is a natural religiosity to the human person, precisely because we are made in the image and likeness of God. So tell me something. The opening games, right? the opening ceremony, doesn't it strike you in a sense almost being like a religious procession? Yeah. That there's a ritual there that almost says this gives an echo to what could be a multinational representation of the procession of the faithful prior to the start of a mass that's on a global scale. Right? There's ritual, there's pageantry, there's song, there's music, there's... And people love it. Yes. Not recognizing it echoes in a very imperfect way what religious ritual does in a far more perfect way. Again, do people stop to think about that? I'm not exactly sure. Maybe now in our modern world, they just consider it entertainment. Yeah. But it's more than entertainment. It's more than entertainment. Yeah. And ask any athlete who gets a medal standing there, whether it's just entertainment. That yeah. they're there as a show for the rest of the world? No, they're not. Right. No, they're not. And, mm -hmm. and as you alluded to um, before, Excellency, sports themselves, watching and, and particularly participating in sports, can definitely uh, reveal and, and, and teach things about ourselves. And, yes. and help us train ourselves in certain ways. Even St. Paul loved the sports metaphors. Yes. I've so, won the race, mm -hmm. right? All right? So now let me ask you, what is it, though, about that? So let's take it apart, right? Let's try to do like a, and this is always a dangerous thing to do, but kind of like look at it from a sociological, psychological, anthropological point of view. And it's dangerous because I'm not trained in any of those subjects. So, I mean, it's like an amateur going into, a, into an operating room. <laughs> it's kind of dangerous <laughs> with the scalpels around. However, let, let's, let's hope we don't get hurt and let's ask the question. So, like, what, what, is, um, what is going on? Okay, so for you, Steve Lee, to be an athlete 
in the Olympics. What are the qualities you have to embrace in your life to get there, besides the raw talent God gave you? Yeah. What would some of those be? Hey, you need um, the discipline to get up early, eat the right, a certain way, to train and work out, mm-hmm. Uh, mm-hmm. the ability to suffer. Excellent, yeah, because it's not easy. It's, it's glamorous when you get the medal, which is what? A ceremony of three, two mm-hmm. minutes, three minutes, mm-hmm. and yet you've done 25 years worth of sacrifice and suffering yeah. to get there in hours where nobody's there except you, your drive for a person of faith, the Holy Spirit, and your blood, sweat, and tears. Yeah. Day in and day out, absolutely, to embrace suffering for a higher cause. Discipline, as you say, absolutely. Yeah. And also you need focus. You're not entertaining 400 things. This is my task, and this is what I devote my life to right now to get this done, to go to the next step. Patience. You don't become an elite athlete in a day. It's the next step. It's the next accomplishment. It's the next right achievement. You're building slowly. Now, let me ask you something. Discipline. Keeping your eyes focused, willing to suffer, are, the, are many of the same principles in the spiritual life. That's why St. Paul said what he said. And so why should it be a shock to us that we find this fascinating? Because we're not, on, we're not gonna get on a standing in a medal, we're gonna get to heaven. Forget the medal. <laughs> you want the prize? That's the prize, ladies and gentlemen. Yes. But it's the same, almost the same methodology, except that the object is different. It's not focusing in on my ability in the sport, but it's, it's surrendering to Christ. And he does everything else. So that's part of it why I think that's fascinating. And the other is when you're in competitive sports in a team, so what are the principles, what are the virtues, what are the, what are the guideposts that guide your work to order to be successful? I mean, the U.S. basketball team had its first loss, what, since 2004? Yeah. And I, I listened on the radio. I didn't watch the game. I listened on the radio on CBS. And the, the one fellow said, well, we didn't get our act together. Right. So tell me, what would you say? What are the principles that, that allow a team to be successful? Yeah. I mean, that would be um, uh, uni- unity of purpose mm-hmm. and selflessness Mm-hmm. Because not you can't on a basketball team you can't have five heroes on the team you need to have five members of a team working mm-hmm. in cohesion. Um, I, I think I mean in team sports and in any sport. Um, I for me with my kids one of the big benefits was not only learning how to uh, lose learning how to lose and come back the next time, right, right. and also right. how to win. With grace. Right. Right. I and think I'm getting off topic. Captain, right? But you need a captain. Yes. You right. need leadership. You need someone who is naturally has that gift or is chosen to do that. But it's servant leadership. You're not there so you shine and the team's in the dark. But you are there to lift up the whole team. So that's what we call servant leadership, right? Yes. So you rally everyone so that there's the common victory. Once again, aren't those principles in the spiritual life? Right. Aren't those the principles that make a community, like a parish, a true community? 
So when you say, does sports help? My gosh, sports helps create the grammar, the structure, the, 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 the roadmap for not just uh, physical enjoyment and physical achievement, but for the spiritual life, if you just apply the same principles in the, in the broader and more important context. Yeah. So in, in the formation of young people, particularly children, sports should play a huge role. That's why CYO was created. Remember CYO? Are you too I, young? You're probably too young. I know what it is, though. Catholic Youth Organization? Mm-hmm. You know who was founded? N- no. Chicago. Okay. And you know when it was founded? 1930 okay. by a bishop. Bishop Scheel. Right at the heart of the Great Depression. And what's its premise? Its premise at the beginning was at an athletic association that would take originally young men from poor and working class families who would have been tempted to get themselves into trouble or worse, into a life of crime precisely because of the effects of the depression and dissuade them from that by moving all the principles we talked about into a a life that where sports would have led them to the life of virtue that we talked about, the principle, and to live in a community of young men and not be on the wrong side of the law. Yeah. Fascinating, no? Yeah, it's it's so Bosco-esque, John Bosco-esque. Without a doubt, without a doubt. And it flourished. It went all over the country. I remember CYO when I was a kid. You know, in prehistoric times, we had it, <laughs> and, right? And, and everybody, and what was it? It was a sports element. It also evolved into a social element. We've spoken about this. You yeah. had the dances, and yeah. the sister was there, and father was there, and your chaperones were there, and all these people. My cousin was there, <laughs> right? He would, and, you know, they were like hawks, mm-hmm. <laughs> you know? I remember, you know, that old fame, make room for the Holy Spirit? <laughs> yes. Right. When you're dancing, yeah. you know, we joke about that. Oh, yeah, but you, 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 many a time, where's the, where's the Holy Spirit? Where are those? He's in heaven. No, he's here. Make some room here. You know, but, but we laugh about that, but, but the lessons that were, learned, were taught. Yeah. Right? Yeah. We, we don't see CYO leagues anymore, and we didn't have them when I was growing up. No, but, I, but, but soon, my friend, in the fall, I will have news about that too. Because I think the time has come for us to reimagine the formation of our young people, particularly in middle school and high school, that sees formation not simply intellectual, but it sees it intellectual, so you know the faith, spiritual, that you're not talking about Jesus, right? But that you encounter the Lord, that you learn how to pray. That it, a life of service where you go out into the world and do and act as if you would believe. And it also has an athletic and social component. Because let me tell you something. I could be wrong. And if the reviewers think I'm wrong, tell me. I'm very happy to learn. My sense is that a lot of young people have a tremendous difficulty finding other young people who are serious and mature and as they grow a bit older, are contemplating married life in a serious and disciplined way. Okay. A person who will go nameless, a young lady, recently said to me, Bishop, everywhere I go, forgive me for putting it this way, I'm just quoting her, she said, they act like jerks. 
It's like going into a place and they're all little boys. Now, that's a characterization, that's a generalization, and she's talking out of frustration. But the level of maturity of a lot of young people is not perhaps where it should be. Yeah. So where does a person yeah. enter into friendships that are really serious and mature and friendships that, that can help you in times of crisis when you need someone to help you not to fall into bad company, bad habits, or sin. You see, I think our parishes should be those places where that happens. Yes. Right? And the social component should be part of that. So you could f- introduce young people to young people who are not gonna be perfect. Oh my goodness, I'm not perfect there, but none of us are. But, but be like a healthy group that does service and, and begins to rebuild a community for them, which is what CIO is meant to, CYO is meant to do. Yeah. Okay, I'm excited for your announcement. Yeah. Okay. But not yet. <laughs> no, no, not No, it's July. You're getting kidding. It's the beginning of August. No, it's too early. <laughs> <laughs> then, then what we'll do is, uh, how about if we take a break then? Fine, you got okay. it. Okay. So you are listening to Let Me Be Frank with Bishop Frank Caggiano on the Veritas Catholic Network. We will be right back. Catholic Radio works. And now we have it here in Connecticut and New York. It's been seen around the country that there's no better tool for evangelization. Where there's Catholic radio, the folks who listen deepen their faith. Families are strengthened. Parishes and communities flourish. So let people know you're listening to Veritas. Tell your friends to tune in. And let's make an impact here for Jesus and his church. This is Steve Lee for Veritas Catholic Network. All right, welcome back to Let Me Be Frank on the Veritas Catholic Network. Excellency, we have about uh, 10 days to go, but I do, I want to make sure that we get to talk about the solemnity of the Assumption of Mary. Um, Mm -hmm. Obviously, it's on August 15th, which this year is on a Sunday. Uh, Before I ask you uh, to reflect on, on the Assumption, though, can we start with this? There are, in the in the Catholic calendar, there are solemnities and there are feasts and there are memorials. Mm-hmm. And walk us through what's the difference? Yeah, see, it's a great question, and and it's one that we don't often think about. But when we look at the mysteries of faith, all right, so the events in the life of the Lord, the events in the life of Our Lady, um, the principal apostles and saints, um, we celebrate them in the, in the calendar. Some are celebrated in the highest form, which we call a solemnity. There are those, of those events that are ex- extremely important, right? But not of the level of importance that a solemnity would speak of or remember. They would be considered the feasts, so they would be of a second rank, and memorials would be a commemoration of a third rank. And the ranking is not so much in a sense of, you know, like we think of gold, silver, and bronze, we don't talk about the Olympics, but it really is a question of everything revolves around the Lord Jesus, who is Savior and Redeemer, right? So if you want to understand, the real question is, what's the relationship between this mystery, this person, to the Lord? And the closer you get to the Lord, the higher the rank would be of the celebration, generally speaking. So a solemnity is considered a mystery in the Lord's life or in Our Lady's life or a saint. 
that is central to the mystery of faith. Everything about the Lord is central. Mm-hmm. And in the celebration of the Mass, it would have its own readings, it has its own prayers, you would recite the Gloria, you would recite the Creed. And every holy day of obligation, okay, is a solemnity. But not every solemnity is a holy day of obligation. Okay. Holy day of obligation is the obligation is similar to Sunday. That this, this aspect of faith or the event in the life of our Lord is so important that even if it occurs in the weekdays, you are to come to Mass right, and enter into the grace of the sacrifice of the Lord's death on the cross, which is hap- what happens when we do come to Mass. But then there are solemnities that are not holy days of obligation, such as uh, the birth of John the Baptist, but still a solemnity because he's the precursor of the Lord. So that's a solemnity. And then the feasts would be similar except you would not recite the creed at Mass, which again, when do we do that? On Sundays. So solemnity and Sundays are identical in the form. So the feast would be without the recitation of the creed, but again, they have proper prayers and property. And then the memorials are those many saints, right, who are there for our intercessors, right, who are there to, to, to encourage us. But, they, but their celebrations are optional, right? In some, but again, given the great diversity of our church, for some countries, some locales, yeah. those memorials are not memorials. Right. right. So, for example, on the feast of, of Mother Teresa, St. Teresa of Calcutta, for the missionaries of charity, all right, it would be of the highest rank because right. she is their founder. Yes. Right? So, in many ways, it's just a way for us to keep clear that we celebrate all of it, but we celebrate it in ways that always point our way back to the Lord Jesus. Yeah. Does that make sense? Yeah, total sense. Yep. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So, and so we have coming up uh, the assumption, which is a solemnity. Yes, of course, of course. So, uh, help us reflect because a everything bit. about everything about our ladies, about our Lord, of course. Yes, what I doubt. That's right. Okay, okay. So now, what's the assumption? Tell me. That was when uh, Mary was assumed. Her body was assumed into heaven at the end of her earthly life. Excellent. Why was Mary assumed into heaven? Uh, because, um, because she was. I I, I don't I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> Steve, I love you. You're the best. <laughs> well, because in effect. Um, the graces Our Lady received, the prevenient graces Our Lady received, right, both in her conception immaculately, mm-hmm. in the conception of Our Lord within her virginally, and in her assumption, all point to the unique place Mary had in salvation history, being sinless, number one, and the intimate relationship we have with our son, in a sense, the assumption is her participation 
already in the grace of the resurrection that is promised to all the just. She has it firsthand because she is the sinless mother of God. We eventually will also please God, body, soul, and spirit, enter into the glory of heaven. At the end of time, in the final judgment, Mary did not wait for the final judgment because she didn't need, there was nothing to judge against her. Right, yeah. Right? But, but so that's one. Interesting, interesting things. Number one, it is not in sacred scripture. Yeah. There's no reference in the sacred scripture of when this happened. Whatever this is, because that's a bit of lack of clarity, that Mary was assumed bodily and therefore with her soul into heaven was dogmatically professed by Pius XII, infallibly professed. So it's the dogma of the church. But it is unclear in that, and he does not address whether or not Our Lady died in that process of being assumed. Okay. Now you may say, but what does that mean? Well, we've talked about this once before, at least once before. Death is a consequence of sin. Death is a consequence of original sin. And it is part of the inherited collective experience we have because we are all sinners. So one could say, then by that definition, Mary would not have died because she was not herself either She had no original sin, and she did not sin in her life. However, the other side of the equation is is that her son also died, who was also perfect and sinless. After all, he is God. Yes. (laughs) But he died. So could it ever be that a creature, as, as as as, as much as we all honor and reverence Our Lady, is it possible for a creature to have a privilege that the Son of God did not have? Which is an interesting question. Yeah. Right? Now, the assumption in the East, orthodoxy, particularly among our orthodox brothers and sisters, they don't call it the assumption. They call it the dormition of the mother of God. The falling asleep of the mother of God. Now, remember what tradition says. Tradition said that after Jesus rose from the dead, the apostles went out in mission, except one. John did not. John, John's task was to care for Our Lady. Behold your mother, behold your son. And he took Mary to Ephesus, right. where she lived, until this extraordinary event occurred. Yes. Mm-hmm. And I had the privilege of going to visit the house of Our Lady in Ephesus, right? We've spoke, it was just a tiny little thing. But tradition holds that Mary lived till she was 72 years old. There's another tradition that says she lived 11 years past the resurrection of the Lord. But the interesting thing is this idea of sleeping, Mary sleeping, the Domitian of Mary, 
it's the Greek word that is the root word for cemetery. Hmm. So literally, a cemetery is the place where they sleep. Because we're await they are awaiting what Our Lady already had. Hmm. So for the Orthodox, if I understand it correctly, for the Orthodox, Our Lady, Our Lady's soul ascended immediately into heaven in the moment of her natural death. And three days later, her body literally resurrected and joined it into heaven. Right? Now, I could be wrong, and I may be mischaracterizing, but that is what I recall being learning when I was in the seminary. Right? But the Catholic point of view is that Mary was assumed at this moment of transition, the moment of death. Yeah. Now, what's interesting is Pope John Paul, in 1997, in June, in one of his uh, um, Angelus talks, clearly says that Mary died. Huh. Okay. And he says, and if allow me to quote it, he says, the fact that the church proclaims Mary free from original sin by a unique divine privilege does not lead to the conclusion that she also received physical immortality. The mother is not superior to the son who underwent death. Then he goes on to say, to share in Christ's resurrection, Mary first had first to share in his death. Then he concludes by saying, whatever from the physical point of view was the organic biological cause of the end of her bodily life, it can be said that for Mary, the passage from this life to the next was the full development of grace in glory so that no death could ever be so fittingly described as a dormition as hers. So what is he saying? He is saying that it was not that her earthly body was made perpetual, but it was transformed. It was made glorious as the Lord's was in his resurrection. So in that moment of transition, if we want to use the word death, her experience of death was fundamentally different from any other human beings, <clears throat> precisely because she was sinless. Yeah. Yeah. Fascinating, no? I mean, he's uh, obviously so smart. It's hard to argue with what he said. But but that's that's he's not he wasn't issuing that as no. dogma, right? No. Excellency. So no. because the question is in Catholic dogma is unresolved. Yeah. Because in the uh, in the proclamation the papal bull it doesn't address it. So it is unresolved. Right. right? So we must believe that she was assumed, but we Absolutely. can Body believe it into yes. heaven. But what that transition, if it involved death, what type of death is an open question. Yeah. Mm -hmm. You know what I think is fascinating, Excellency, and, and a, an argument for her assumption is that um, we know that the cities back then used to be very proud of the fact that they would have a saint's remains. Rome had Peter and Paul and there was Santiago de Compostela and lots of others. 
But no city ever claimed to have the remains of Mary. Not Jerusalem, not Ephesus, nobody. Right. So but it, they can't. Right, exactly. <laughs> there are none. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> exactly. <but> it, <laughs> so, um, so the Assumption of Mary, it's the, it's the fourth uh, glorious mystery in the, in the rosary. Yes. So, um, what, what do you should, image? Yeah. What do you image when you pray the prayer? Like when you're in the fourth, uh, the fourth mystery, the glorious yeah. mystery. You know, I try to picture what it, you know, you know, images cross your mind. So yeah. what do you see in your mind's eye? I have to say, uh, <laughs> maybe it's because I stared at, at it uh, for so many years. But there's, in St. Mary's in Norwalk, there's this beautiful painting oh, yes. of the Assumption of yes. Mary. That's, that's what I picture in my head. And then, I don't know if this is right or not, Excellency, but I also will think about, okay, she assumed into heaven, that's the path that I want to take, not, you know, after I die, of course, but, but uh, you know, I want to follow that path. Um, but I, don't, I mean, help me, help me do better. <laughs> no, I, well, no, because I think the image that comes to my mind is the Church of the Dormition, in the Holy Land, where I have this, this, this impressed memory of on the lower level, there is what appears to be a sarcophagus of Our Lady, you know, where Our Lady would have rested before her assumption. Right? Because in my mind, um, the image is one The image is Our Lady at the right hand of her son, taking her rightful place in glory, and leaving behind for us not an empty space, okay, but an enduring presence. So that, that what looks like a sarcophagus, is not because there's a body in it. But because there's a reminder that she's still present here with us. Mm -hmm. right? You know, in, in my more poetic moments, which are few and far between, I imagine emphasis, I imagine that little house empty. And John walking around because it's empty, because she's not there physically <laughs> anymore. Right. And, yeah. And by that time, John would have been middle aged, right? And then what happened to him? Yeah. Right? And, and I'm sure he loved Our Lady as his own mother. Yeah. So when this occurred, what happened to John? Yeah. Yeah, he's walking. Uh, mother? Mother, where are you? <laughs> yeah, exactly. So then he lost the Lord, right, through death, and, and experienced him resurrected. And then he was given this great charge. Our Lady gets assumed. And I'm not sure if he, if he had an experience of Our Lady in, that, in the Assumption. Could have been. We yeah. don't know. So, uh, so what do I image? I image that church. I image an empty little house in Ephesus where, where I visited, right? Many other pilgrims visit. Um, then I go immediately to the fifth, which is Our Lady. I have this image of Our Lord on, on this glorious throne and Our Lady right next to him. Yeah. Maybe a step lower. Yeah. In, 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 it's, it's almost like the restoration of what we all want, yeah. desire to be part of. Yeah. Mm -hmm. 
Yeah, it's, it's, um, it's so beautiful. I, 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 I guess right now I'm just feeling like, I almost feel bad that, um, Protestants and some other people don't get it. You know what it is? I think, um, I wouldn't have put, I wouldn't put it that way. What I would say is that there's a tremendous value and a corrective that our Protestant brothers and sisters can offer us by constantly reminding us, like the, 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 the very ranking of our liturgical celebrations, that in the end, as awesome and stupendous and as beautiful and sublime as Our Lady is, without her son, she would be nothing. Yeah, right. Right? And you know there's a tendency among some Catholics that that gets obscured because they have a great devotion to Padre Pio, a great devotion to St. Anthony, a great devotion to Our Lady, a great devotion to her, which is wonderful. But those devotions can't eclipse the Lord. Yes. That's putting the cart before the horse. That's, that <laughs> makes no sense. Right. And those right? saints would not be happy with it either. Not at all. Starting with Our Lady. <laughs> yeah, right. Like she, like she said, are you deaf? I said, do whatever he tells you. I didn't say do whatever I tell you. I said, do whatever he tells you. I mean, right? You can see, like a mother, sit you down. But what, what, what didn't you understand here in the sentence? <laughs> right. so, so there is, a, there is, again, like everything else, in the larger Christianity, even though we are divided, if there's a true fraternal, spirit amongst the churches. There is this uh, ability for us to, um, to learn from one another and correct the excesses that could occur in any of the communities, if there's yes. true willingness, right? Yep. And also willingness to learn. And of course, from our perspective, we believe we've maintained the full deposit of faith. Hmm? Yeah. But even though you have the full deposit of faith, you could still have your priorities wrong. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, you're almost describing, Excellency, an Olympics of, of Christian churches. <laughs> right, right, exactly. Right. And, and this whole idea of, so we should do a, a podcast on ecumenism because it is so badly misunderstood. Yeah. You know, there's a commentary, Iwa de Modo Proprio. I, I, was, I listened to um, a, a show on EWTN and a commentator made a comment where I thought to myself, I'm not exactly sure where are you even getting this? But this whole idea that the reform of the mass was driven by this idea that we want to make it as Protestant-looking as possible to help in the ecumenical dialogue. Where he got this notion is a mystery to me. Hmm. Right? When it was all about going back to the ancient fonts, right? the Domus Ecclesiae and all the rest. But the point is, ecumenism is not compromise among people. Okay? It is... It is establishing a, a relationship of dialogue and, and, and mutual listening because it's the Lord we must be looking towards together. The Lord knows the path to unity and the affirmation of the fullness of the truth. It's not that we compromise the truth because that's not unity. Right. Yep. Right? Yeah. So to your point, if you imagine Christianity and a great Olympics with all of the... It's not... It, it, it's... It's the fire of the Holy Spirit and the centerpiece is Christ. We're not looking at each other, we're looking all towards Him. Yeah. 
Yeah, very mm-hmm. good. Mm-hmm. Excellency, let's let's take one more break, and we'll be back with a with a, a listener question. This is Let Me Be Frank with Bishop Frank Caggiano on the Veritas Catholic Network. Why do we need Catholic radio? Because not everybody's sitting in front of a computer or watching their television set at home. How about when driving to work? How about while at work at your desk? Catholic Radio is there for you. I may be a Catholic priest, but I'm still a student of the faith. And Catholic Radio helps supply good material, whether it be a question-and-answer format show, whether it be a show itself on doctrine or theology. I myself, as a priest, am always learning. Okay, welcome back to Let Me Be Frank with Bishop Frank Caggiano. Excellency, we got an interesting question here. Um, Mm -hmm. And here it is. And you would know from personal experience. So Mm -hmm. the question is, uh, Bishop Frank, what is the role of an auxiliary bishop? Well, that's easy, to make the diocesan bishop look good. (laughs) 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 If you want to be happy. (laughs) No, No, but the the more accurate answer to that question is, um, in, in diocese and archdiocese, first of all, you cannot be a bishop without a diocese. An auxiliary bishop becomes a titular, takes on a titulacy that is not functioning, that once was active and now is no longer active. That's why I t- said to you about um, uh, my, um, I was an Irish bishop because I had a see that was once a monastery, right? Hmm. Anyway, but in practical terms, the Holy Father grants auxiliary bishops to those bishops, archbishops, and cardinals whose dioceses are so large that it would be impossible for the bishop to attend to all the duties and responsibilities that would be expected of him. So he has co-workers in the episcopacy who will help him with sacramental functions, liturgical functions, um, social functions, you know, communal functions. Um, that's really where it comes from. Okay. So and, there- and, and to and to be honest, to be an auxiliary bishop is also a place to learn yeah. both how to be a bishop and if you have the natural gifts and talents and to be able to one day lead a diocese, you learn. Yeah. You have a mentoring relationship to learn. How many years, Excellency, were you an auxiliary bishop? Well, okay, that's an excellent question. August, this August 22nd, I will be a bishop 15 years. Of those 15 years, I've spent eight here, so it was seven years as an auxiliary bishop. Okay. I just crossed, I think it was in March where I crossed the line that I've been more years a diocesan bishop than an auxiliary bishop. <laughs> Congratulations. Yay. <laughs> Thank you. Thank you. Look at all the hair I lost. Yes, of course, you could tell. <laughs> it's like the rings of a tree. <laughs> no, right. I love what I do. I love what I do, and I'm grateful to the Lord for the opportunity to do it. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah, amen. If you are listening and you have a question for Bishop Frank, send it in to us on social media, or you can email questions at veritascatholic.com. Bishop Frank Caggiano is on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter, and so is Veritas Catholic Network. Um, I want to give a big thank you to our sponsor, Foundations in Faith. It is a grant from the St. Therese Fund for Evangelization that makes it possible for us to bring Let Me Be Frank to all of you. Foundations in Faith is committed to supporting and transforming pastoral ministries within the Diocese of Bridgeport. You can learn more about their outstanding work at foundationsinfaith.org. 
Excellency, would you please give us your blessing? The Lord be with you. With your spirit. May Almighty God bless you and all those who are listening to us this day. In the name of the Father, of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Amen. Listen, my friend, the summer is dwindling. It's disappearing. I hope you enjoy some more time before yes. we're back into the fall. Yeah. Mm-hmm. I'll, I'll ask you uh, maybe next week or two weeks from now about uh, your plans to wrap up the summer. If you have I'll any. give you my entire, all my painting plans. I'll give you the whole lay of the land, what's yeah. going on. Absolutely. <laughs> Thanks, Excellency. All the best to you, Steve. God bless you.